Thank you for tuning into episode three, part three of the introduction to the podcast NC Modern Day Lynching. I'm your producer and narrator, Tina Smith. In episode two, part two of the introduction, I left off talking about the February the fifth, nineteen ninety seven shooting of Keith Richardson. I'll continue with that. After Sean shot Keith Burock Richardson in self-defense on February the 5th, 1997, sometime later in 1997, DeMott White told the FBI that he brought drugs from Mr. Richardson and personally saw him with different guns, including a 22 or 25 caliber gun. That statement by Mr. White was used by the DEA to help indict Mr. Richardson, who was given the exact same lawyer named Michael G. Howe that DeMont White had when making this statement. The point is, it's the same kind of gun Sean said Mr. Richardson pulled out on him. Both Julius Jones and Antonio Murphy stated in a sworn affidavit between 2005 and 2010 that Mr. Richardson was the aggressor and had a gun the day Sean shot him, in which Antonio Murphy, who is Mr. Richardson's friend, conveyed he would have did the same thing if he was Sean Carter the day he shot Mr. Richardson. Mr. Richardson's Donald Brunson murder trial testimony was he did not have a gun, and he could not have a gun the day Sean shot him because he was a convicted felon. Despite the fact that his girlfriend, Thais Clemens, was charged by the DEA or FBI in part for putting guns in her name for convicted felon Mr. Richardson. And Mr. Richardson had previous gun possession charges on his criminal record. On February the 10th or 11th, 1997, Mr. Richardson picked Sean Carter out of a photo lineup at the Wilmington Police Department as the man who shot him. Despite the fact that Mr. Richardson had already obtained Sean's mugshot photo from bondsman Terry Jackson. See case number two, exhibit number 71, exhibit 78, exhibit 81, and exhibit 148 on the website ncmoderndaylynching.org. The Wilmington Police Department did not even attempt to save a warrant on Sean Carter for shooting Mr. Richardson on February the 5th, 1997, despite the fact Sean was on parole for drug sale charges. And on February the 16th, 1997, between the hours of 1 p.m. and 4 p.m., Sean was on 10th and Dawson Street in Wilmington, North Carolina, in front of the entrance to the Johnson's Corner Store, and Kawada Timoni, who rode to 10th and Dawson Street with Sean, was standing on the actual corner of 10th and Dawson Street when Tyrone Baker suddenly appeared and walked up blindsided to Kawada Timoni with an army-filled coat draped over his upright forearm and hand, as if concealing the gun he kidnapped and pistol whipped the Mont White with and without provocation or word viciously punched Mr. Timoni in the face, knocking him out 
with one blow. Suitcase number two, exhibit number one, and exhibit 18 on the website ncmoderndaylynching.org. Mr. Baker then with his forearm and hand still covered up with the army field coat in the upright position in which all Sean could think about is how Mr. Baker, 80 days earlier, told DeMont White he was killing everybody involved with stealing his money. And just five days earlier, another drug dealer, Keith Richardson, pulled out a gun on Sean, instantly turned towards Sean, who already knew Mr. Baker was armed and dangerous from what he'd done to Mr. White. See case number two, exhibit number 20, exhibit 21, and exhibit 22 on ncmoderndaylynching.org. As Mr. Baker advanced on Sean, Sean, fearing for his life, slowly retreated while slowly reaching with his right hand for his gun that he carried on his left side under his armpit and a shoulder holster. And once Sean grabbed the grip of his gun, he quickly whipped it out while simultaneously firing at Mr. Baker, who was caught by surprise, just like the Keith Burrock Richardson was five days before. Mr. Baker was instantly hit in his thigh and at the same time turned to run. He was fatally shot on his left side below his last rib, in which that bullet traveled upwards and counter-cornered to Mr. Baker's right side of his chest, hitting part of his heart. Then Sean at this time didn't know Mr. Baker was fatally shot, so as Mr. Baker turned, the corner of Johnson's store, Sean went behind him and continued to shoot at Mr. Baker, in which all other shots missed, and it was at this time a stray bullet went, the, went down the street and went through the windshield of the car Demetrius Green was sitting in and hit the steering wheel, breaking up in pieces, ricocheting, striking Demetrius. Mr. Baker ran up the sidewalk across 10th Street towards Jerry Projects before collapsing. Sean, who stopped at the phone booths on the side of Johnson's Corner Store, went back to his vehicle that was parked right in front of the entrance of Johnson's Corner Store and got in. And about the same time, Kawada Timoy jumped in the passenger side and they left going back to Sean's house. See case number two, exhibit one, exhibit 18, exhibit 19, and exhibit 21 on ncmoderndaylynching.org. Right after the shooting, a woman named Renee Barnes, who sold powder cocaine for Tyrone Baker, ran out of her home, crossing the four lane on Dawson Street, then went up 10th Street over where Mr. Baker was laying. Miss Barnes said Mr. Baker briefly spoke to her before he died. It was reported nine months after the fact that Miss Barnes, who detective never knew existed, took the gun that Mr. Baker had under his army field coat, along with his field coat, to her home before police arrived. Mr. Baker army field coat with his blood on it was took through several states in 10 to 12 hours from Wilmington, North Carolina.
to Harlem, New York City by Mr. Baker's girlfriend, Melinda Martinez, who received the coat from Miss Barnes. This fact of Miss Barnes tampering with the evidence at the scene before the police arrived should have immediately had taken the death penalty off the table for prosecutors, not to mention the obvious fact that Sean Carter act in self-defense against Tyrone Baker. This shows the lynch mob mentality of the prosecutors. Renee Barnes years later testified in Sean's trial that she knew Mr. Baker from braiding his hair, in which she braided his hair the day he was killed, that she in fact took Mr. Baker's army felt coat before police arrived and alleged there was no gun on Mr. Baker and she did not take a gun from him, that she ran with Mr. Baker's coat to her home to get a pillow and just left his coat in her house, that she later took the car keys out of Mr. Baker's coat and drove his vehicle to his apartment where his girlfriend, Melinda Martinez, was waiting. See case number two, exhibit number nine, exhibit 11, exhibit 18, and exhibit 46 on NC Modern Day Lynching org sometime after 12 a.m on february the 18 1997 lewis tyson who the white told the fbi tyson had cased the bank with him and kawada timoni before the bank was robbed on august the 30th 1996 called called police to report that he had been shot in a home invasion, attempted robbery by two suspects. Mr. Tyson named Kawada Timoni and Julian, whose mother owned a game room on 6th and Dawson Street. Julius Jones' mother owned on 6th and Dawson Street, across the street from the gas station. Donna Brunson and DeMont White was at the night of the Brunson's murder, a game room on 6th and Dawson Street. Across the street from the gas station, Donna Brunson and DeMont White was at the night of the Brunson murder. Also, during this time, Julius Jones and Kawada Timoni were roommates. Mr. Tyson described one suspect as wearing an army coat and another wearing a black and gold Maurice Malone coat, and both suspects was about 5 feet 8 inches tall. See case number 1. Exhibit number 67 and Exhibit 70 on NC Modern Day Lynching dot org. Between 6 and 8 p.m. on February the 18th, 1997, Sean and Kawada Timoni were arrested coming out of a Motel 6 room about to get in a cab. When police officers who were hiding came running out with their guns drawn in which Sean and Mr. Timoni took off running. A all navy blue down coat with a windy fast food hat in the pocket was found on the ground in the parking lot of the motel. Sean was arrested wearing a military flat jacket and Mr. Timoni had on no coat. Timoni's girlfriend Amber Little who was employed at the Wendy's fast food restaurant on Market Street in Wilmington, North Carolina at the same time and Sean's wife, Lakeisha Carter, was in the motel room. A list said to be written in Sean's handwriting on a piece of paper listed gloves, mask, duct tape, 
blunts, and cigarettes were said to be found in Sean's pocket. But detective told Sean's lawyer years later they found it in the trash in the motel room. In 1999, the navy blue coat found in the Motel 6 parking lot allegedly all, all of a sudden had a visible blood stain on it. So detectives sent it to the SBI lab to be tested for DNA. Strangely, the dry blood tested positive for Lewis Tyson's DNA. Once Sean's wife, Lakeisha Carter, Kawada Timoni's girlfriend, Amber Little, Sean and Mr. Timoni was transported to the Wilmington, North Carolina Police Department. Detective got about three inconsistent statements from Kawada Timoni about the February 16, 1997 shooting deaths of Tyrone Baker and Demetrius Green. Detectives got one short statement from Lakeisha Carter indicating acting in self-defense on February the 16th, 1997. Detective got one short statement from Amber Little that was withheld from Sean because it also supported self-defense and the fact that Amber Little is a Caucasian and mostly Caucasian jury would tend to believe Miss Little's statement. Sean refused to make any direct statement about the February the 16, 1997 shooting until he obtained a lawyer. See case number two, exhibit number 44. As I conveyed to you earlier on, I'm trying to give you a visual of some events concerning or impacting Sean's case. Before I get into details about exactly how Sean Carter was wrongfully convicted, excuse me, convicted, that way you will be somewhat familiarized with the main characters and what this true crime podcast, NC Monday Lynching, is about. The word corpus delicti is Latin, and it means United States court system, the body of crime, that a reported crime in fact did occur. When a person reported or confessed to a crime, there has to be some independent evidence that a crime actually happened before anybody can be convicted for that alleged crime. The mafia in the United States, for the most part, routinely gets rid of the bodies of their murder victims because they knew no corpus delicti. No crime occurred, no crime occurred, no criminal charges. I say that to say normally the foundational witness is the one who reports a crime occurred. Sometimes they are the victim and eyewitness to the crime, also known as the body of the crime. Sometimes they are just eyewitness to a crime, and sometimes this foundational witness just stumbled upon a crime after it was committed. Foundational witness inherently have the power to determine if a crime is even reported, if it's solved when it's solved, or if the right person or people are convicted for the crime. For instance, if a person reported they have been sexually assaulted, that person instantly becomes a foundational witness in the body of the crime. If that foundational witness lies about anyone of the five W's, who, what, 
where, when, and why this can destroy the investigation of a crime and possibly lead to the wrongful conviction of an innocent person or no conviction for the crime at all. To relate all this back to Sean Cardo's wrongful conviction, the foundational witness to the Donald Brunson's murder is Mr. Brunson's girlfriend, Anna Santiago. Now, as I just stated, if the foundational witness, for whatever reason, lies about any one of the five W's, it can increase the possibility that an innocent person like Sean Carter will be wrongfully convicted. When Anna Santiago did not tell detectives in her very first statement that her boyfriend, Mr. Brunson, had just won $12,000 playing crops, excuse me, playing craps at the Hilltop Club in Wilmington, North Carolina, it nine times out of ten brought the people responsible for the murder time to get rid of the evidence, leave town, or even give them time to kill Mr. Brunson, and the same goes towards Miss Sandy Eggles and actions of not immediately calling the police. These inactions are the same as lying. Look when Anna Santiago didn't call the police to report a crime had happened for at least two hours. Then, in fact, was lying about the existence of a crime through her inactions, especially when she lied to the police about her inaction, which allowed the perpetrators of the crime to get away. See case number one, exhibit number 28, page two, exhibit 30, page one, exhibit 118, on the website ncmondaylynching.org. By Anna Santiago not telling the police that Mr. Brunson won $12,000 playing craps just a couple of hours before he was kidnapped, kept detectives from finding Eugene Habib Seabrooks, who lost money in that craps game and was already suspect and allegedly charged in Newark, New Jersey with murdering a man over a craps game, then bonded out of jail on the murder charges, then tried to kill at least one witness to that murder before making his way down south to Wilmington, North Carolina. A couple of years later, about 45 days after the Brunson murder on January the 20th, 1997, Mr. Seabrook either himself killed another person or had something to do with another murder for which he received 32 life for the murder as well as 32 life for an August 20th, 1994 murder. www.njecpo.org backward slash press backward slash pr underscore 157 dot html to read Eugene Seabrook's case. At this point, Miss Santiago has lied about who, what, when, and why. Please tune in to episode four, part one of the Broken Foundation Witness of the Donald Brunson murder on the podcast NC Modern Day Lynching.org. Thank you.